Welcome back to Crosspoint if you're here for the umpteenth time or maybe the second. If you're first time among us, we're especially glad that you're here. Uh, my name is Bruce Garner. I'm the teaching pastor here at Crosspoint, and we have been moving through the book of Philippians. This is the next to last sermon in Philippians. Then we're going to celebrate Easter together. Then we're going to literally turn the page and work through Colossians. It's going to be great, okay? All right, three people are excited. I might need a chair after all. Uh, that kind of enthusiasm. Um, guys doing all right? I'm in a weird season of life because I've got a half-empty nest. I've got two boys, and one of them has moved on to bigger and greater things in the city of Phoenix, where he is a college student. He likes everything about the experience except Phoenix in the summer. <laughs> we moved him there in August. It was 117 degrees the day we arrived. I thought he might jump back in the car and head back west on the 10, but that's, he knows that's what God has for him right now, but he did come up with a good diagnosis two days after he turns to me in stifling heat. Because if you've never experienced it, I grew up in the high desert, but 117 is rare even in, in the desert. 117, everything hurts. The wind doesn't help. It's actually like being in a convection oven when the wind kicks up. It, it actually gets worse. I'm not sure what the scientific tipping point is where wind is actually undesirable in the heat, but it was horrible. And he turned to him and he said, Dad, this city shouldn't exist. <laughs> he said, this is a monument to man's arrogance. And I thought, you know, he's right. Because back in the old covered wagon days, somebody stopped and said, I don't care, we'll put it here. And they clearly knew what they were getting into because the city name is Phoenix. If you don't remember your mythology, Phoenix is the mythical bird that rises from the ashes. It's bad. But when the boy moved to Phoenix, the boy got his… I hadn't thought to do it until he moved. When he moved to Phoenix, he got his own ringtone. Because whatever else was going on in my life, if the 18-year-old college student who was six hours away ever decided to call or send a text message, I was going to stop anything short of a funeral service to pay attention to that text message or that phone call. It's that important. And he's a strong, silent type. He went on a competition to represent the school uh, and disappeared for three days, didn't tell us. Uh, we didn't know if he'd been kidnapped or he was simply competing. Um, when he came back, he said he'd gone well and, you know, he'd keep us posted as we needed to know things, that there would be uh, updates to follow. <laughs> We're on a need-to-know basis, and apparently we don't need to know that much. <laughs> so we don't talk nearly as often as I would like, but we do text pretty well. And it's got to be annoying for him because since these text messages are few and precious, I try to pack a lot in. <laughs> you know, in the day, in the 10 minutes he has, because he works pretty hard, the 10 minutes he has to communicate, I'll just give it all to him. You know, make sure you change the truck's oil, read your Bible, and if you're going to train that early, for goodness sake, have breakfast. That's one text message. 
which explains maybe why I don't get as many as I would like, but <laughs> when I read the first half of the fourth chapter of Philippians, when I read it through the first time, it felt like that. Just a lot of quick, snappy instructions. It's almost as if Paul knows he's coming to the end. He's writing from prison, remember. We don't know the circumstances of, of this, of his exact situation, but we do know he's in prison. He may not have had as much time. He may not have had as much ink and, and paper as he would have liked to say all that he wanted to say to this church. And when it comes to the end, it feels a little hurried, and it's really, if you read through it, and we will slowly, and you're going to study it with me here in a minute, you'll see it's just one instruction after another. There's a blessing promised amidst all these instructions that I think ties it all together, but at the first reading, it just seems like a grab bag of good things to remember and good things to do before he signs off. Look with me in Philippians chapter 4, and you'll see what I mean. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Therefore, my brothers, this is the Philippian church, a church that Paul had started preaching on a riverbank to a group of women who had organized, now has pastors and deacons and a healthy congregation. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. You know how Paul felt about these people? We're studying the Bible together. I'll explain in a second why we're doing it this way. I want you to count the terms of affection in verse 1. Just one little verse, how he turns the corner toward the end of this letter. How many different ways does he show that he loves them? Let's study together a little bit. They are his brothers. I, whom I love, and not only that, I also long for you. He considers them his joy and his crown. Stand firm thus in the Lord, and then he closes with laying it on pretty thick. He really loves them. This is father language. Paul remembers what it was like to stand at the side of that river and preach to a small group of women from which this little church was birthed. He's received from Epaphroditus, one of their faithful members who has gone to Paul in prison with money and supplies to keep him sustained, to keep him going. He knows all about them, and they are right in the center of his heart. He loves them dearly. And then he's going to give them all of these different instructions, and it gets really personal in the beginning. And one of the things you'll see with all the different things that Paul is talking about in these nine verses, what he's aiming at in the whole passage is he wants them to stand in Jesus and experience the peace of God. He knows perhaps better than they what sort of trouble they're in. Way back in chapter 1, Paul said, you have opponents and you now find yourself in the same suffering that has engulfed me. They've got enemies in town, people who have broken relationships with them, who were opposed to this new message, this radical message 
of a Jewish teacher who came from God, who died on a cross, and that disgraceful death was actually how Jesus paid for the sins of the world, and the further lie they believe it is in the pagan world that He rose from the dead to give eternal life to anyone who would trust Him? There's no middle ground with that kind of message. In the pagan world especially, you either line up with that or you consider that crazy and empire-destabilizing trouble. The Philippians already had, Paul says, opponents, godless people whose, my, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and they have already begun to suffer the same kinds of trouble that have led Paul into prison. Now he's closing their letter and his letter, and he says, what I want to come out of this letter is when it's all said and done, I want you to be standing firm in Jesus. I don't want you knocked off your feet. I don't want the suffering that is coming against you and the opponents and the social and the family cost that it is meant for you to follow Jesus. I don't want that to sway you. And everything in the next eight verses from two through nine is aimed at them having peace. Here's the good news. God has provided for your peace. To know Jesus is to have peace with God and to follow Jesus. If you will do what He says, you will experience peace even in circumstances where nothing around you is peaceful. Nate and Jen are in a trial. They're on the anvil right now having followed Jesus as best they can, and if they will continue to follow Him, Nate and Jen, my prayer and hope and trust from this passage, the same for you as it is for myself and everyone who's listening, we can experience the peace of God because God has provided for it. But as Paul gives them these final instructions, there's several things that are what I call peace wreckers that he's going to mention. And the first is really personal, and a little bit awkward. Look in verse 2. I entreat Euodia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. You understand why that's awkward? Ancient churches met in homes, probably in groups no larger than 30 or 40 at a time in any one individual home because ancient homes weren't that large. A well-sized home, normal person's home, might have had a space for 30 or 40 people to meet comfortably together. And now this little church and however many homes they were spread out in, if they've grown, has received a personal letter from the Apostle Paul, and now it's probably going to be copied down, and certainly the original is going to be carefully guarded and carried from home to home and read. They're going to worship, they're going to pray, and they're going to say, we got a letter from Paul. And everybody's going to sit around with excitement. And then right at the end of the letter, after all this great teaching about Jesus and humility and striving together for the unity of the gospel and finding joy in Jesus through it all, right at the end he says, oh, by the way, ladies, Euodia and Syntyche, please get it together. What did he ask them to do? We're going to study the Bible. Verse 2, what specifically is his request to them? To do what? 
just, just read and agree in the Lord. They have, in other words, two women in the church have gotten sideways with each other. Have you ever known anyone in the church to do that? You ever known any Christians to have any disagreements with each other? I don't know who these two women are. This is the only time they're mentioned, but I do know that the church started as Paul preached to a group of women. It's very likely that these are some of the very first believers in the Philippian church. They were founding members. They were there at the beginning. They could talk about the first sermon. If they had a mind to, they could have said, oh, yes, that was really nice, but you should have been here when Paul was here. A lot better than our current pastor. Now, these were studying together. Good, good people, bad people. What kind of people are these? Good? How do you know? What have they done with Paul? These are frontliners. They've worked with him according to verse 2. They have labored side by side with me in the gospel. They, among a group of others who are not named, have their names written in the book of life. On one hand, how thrilling to read that set of yourself by the Apostle Paul, but how awkward to be in a gathering of 25 people and suddenly discover your name as one half of a dispute. See, one of the things that kills the peace of God in Christians' lives is this. It's hard to get along with people. I don't know if you've noticed. It is. People sometimes come into church with an expectation that because everybody here loves Jesus, it should be easy to get along with them. And yes, it should, but it's not. Because we're not entirely like Him just yet. How much does it matter to Paul that this little church stay united? Something has divided these two women, and it's obviously affecting the whole church, or Paul would not have mentioned it publicly. He is discreet. He is a gentleman. He is measured. But he says, Euodia and Syntyche, I beg you, agree in the Lord. We're still studying. What is the basis of Paul's appeal for Christians to come together? Did he say, figure out who's right and wrong? What's the basis of their unity going to be, according to verse 2? I hear mumbling, but no clear decision. They agree in whatever divides them is much smaller in comparison to what they have in common, which is Jesus. That's true for you as well. If you haven't understood the method to this particular madness, and it is madness, one of the values of moving through a book together is I'm trying to teach you not only to listen to, to Bible teaching, but to also interpret the Bible for yourself. If you'll notice, all that I'm doing is asking questions. This is how you understand the Bible. You read it slowly, and you ask better and better and more and more questions of it. Whatever happened, it's divided the church. It's had a chilling effect on everybody because now everybody knows this public business. And the basis for their unity, Paul says, is what they have in common, which is Jesus Christ. That's true for you and me as well. If you were my brother or sister in Christ, whatever could divide us, 
whatever sin or selfishness or simple disagreement, different point of view, no one's right, no one's wrong, it's not a moral choice, just we see things differently, whatever that is, Jesus is greater and Jesus is bigger. He put Himself on the cross to make one body to make us unified. Please understand the urgency of this simple little verse which will destroy the peace of so many people. If you're having trouble with another Christian in the church, take seriously what Paul is working on here. He is begging these two people to mind their relationship and to come together in their relationship in Jesus Christ. It's alarming, really. It's one of the hidden killers of church and Christian experience that we will allow ourselves to get sideways with another believer and treat that so casually. We get used to that distance, we get used to that coldness, and we do nothing to address it. And it's not right. Paul wrote another fractious, divided church. This is a good church. This is a solid church. You can see how delighted Paul is with them in verse 1. They are his crown and joy, and yet they are not yet perfect in unity. Paul wrote another church, the Corinthians, and he said to them that the church is not only like a family, it's like a body. The reason I felt on death's door for a couple days this week is there was just the slightest thing wrong with my body. I had a mild infection, and parts of the system started fighting each other and not cooperating, and I felt miserable. With the three-degree three fever, I felt terrible. What's alarming is in the body of Christ, in the local church, we'll get used to that dysfunction, we'll get used to that difference, that separation, and we'll treat it as if it's normal, as if it's Christian. Think about the analogy of the body. If somehow I were in some terrible accident and I suddenly noticed after the smoke cleared that my left thumb was laying in the street, would it be reasonable to say, well, that's okay. I've got another thumb much like it on the other hand. I'm right-handed. I'll be okay. What would you expect me to do if I came to and noticed that my left thumb's laying on Warner Avenue? Probably use the rest of the body to pick it up, Right? And maybe use the voice to say, need a little help? Uh, I've got my left thumb in my right hand or something like that. When a human body is divided, people treat that as what it is, an emergency, something that requires critical, urgent, wise intervention. That's all Paul's doing here. So if you're even a little bit sideways with another believer in this church, do what Jesus said. Be reconciled to Him, then come back with a full heart and worship your Father, because this not-minding relationships kills peace. Look at verse 4. Paul said, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. He's still thinking about relationships, but now he moves his thoughts outward. He says in verse 5, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Now Paul's not thinking about the way they interact with other Christians. He's thinking about the wider world outside, including that part of the world that hates them. And he said, let your reasonableness, hard word to pronounce. Another way to translate that, let your gentle spirit be known to all. What's the admonition here in these first five verses? 
If you would experience the peace of God, you have to mind your relationships, and here's God's standard for everyone who's following Jesus. You are to labor and strive and humble yourself and work toward and swallow your pride and be kind and, and be courageous to be united with other Christians and to show a gentle spirit toward everyone else. Now, if I may, if I can have a Marco Rubio moment here. If you don't catch that, that's probably two-year-old political reference, but I'm overheating. Are Christians known for their gentle spirit toward the world right now? When people who aren't following Jesus think of Christians, do you think gentle is in the top five words that come to mind? What does come to mind? Judgmental, angry. Now listen, there are many things, there are many places where we will stand with Christ and we will suffer for it. If the truth isn't popular, and Jesus is the truth, and you love the truth and you speak the truth, even when you do it in love, sometimes the truth will be hated. But far too many attitudes, way too much tone, and frankly, far too much content that's coming out from Christians has nothing at all to do with showing a gentle spirit toward everyone. You want to measure your faithfulness toward Jesus? It's going to take a gentle spirit toward everyone. Not just love from within your family, that, that's the easy part. Loving people inside your family of faith, you understand that Jesus died for them and died for you, brought you together. They may not be the easiest people to get along with, but at the end of the day, you somehow love them. But people who don't love your Savior, who don't want to listen, who are quick, ironically, to judge you while they call you judgmental, what is the calling card of the Christian when he is being persecuted? What is the calling card of the Christian who has opponents, as Paul said the Philippian church already did in Philippians chapter 1? A gentle spirit, a reasonable spirit, a quiet, understanding, self-controlled spirit toward everyone. You mind your relationships, united with other Christians, and gentle toward everyone else. Then he says, the Lord is at hand. As you do all this, remember the return of the Lord is near and the person of the Lord is present. He is with you. He is observing all of these things. We're His disciples. Everyone in this angry season in American Christian life would do well to remember we bear His name and we represent Him. You may very well be the only witness in an increasingly biblically illiterate society where people don't own Bibles, much less read them. They read them and they don't begin to understand them because it's a big, vast book with 66 different divisions, faraway places, people they've never heard of before. The first and most attractive representation that Jesus has on earth is a Jesus follower, a disciple, a Christian. That's why Paul told them the Lord is at hand. Remember, he is, not only is his return near, he's personally present with you. And in verse 6, he goes on, do not be anxious about anything. Where are my warriors? Not warriors. We've got enough Christian warriors. Where are my Christian warriors? Those who worry. 
This crowd's as dishonest as the first one, okay? You've always been my favorite service. I had so much better hopes for you that, uh, that you would do better and be more honest. Yeah. I didn't even look. I'm sorry, brother. Looked right over you. Do not be anxious about anything, Paul says, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. I like the simplicity of the New Living Translation on this verse. They wrote this, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. That's what Paul's after. He loads it up with all kinds of different words to let you know how much you should be praying and how complete prayer is. In everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. What does all that mean? You speak to God. That's prayer. You come to Him in a needy condition. That's supplication. You can't possibly make demands, but you're instructed, you're invited, you're encouraged, you're loved to bring to God with supplication all the requests, your own requests, everything that concerns you, you can bring to Him. Paul says, just make sure as you bring it that it's also laced and covered with thanksgiving because whatever your need is, you already have much to thank Him for. Oh, my goodness. What a difference is that going to make? Verse 7, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. See, you can't worry and pray at the same time. You can only do one of those things at a time. And one of the things I recently discovered about myself, and I felt like an idiot when it finally dawned on me, is I confuse prayer and worry. I think I'm praying… But if I really think about it, I'm not talking to God about it. I'm just turning it over in my own mind. You ever do that? You're not doing anything except exhausting yourself. You're doing nothing to help tomorrow. You're only emptying that moment of its joy and its strength. You're in no better shape because you haven't addressed Him. You've simply turned it over in your own mind. Paul says, instead of being anxious… Instead, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God, and here's what will happen in that moment. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, in other words, that is literally inexplicable, that has nothing to do with your circumstances because they have not yet changed, that peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That word guards, very, very strong word. It actually means garrisons. In other words, it's a military word. It speaks of soldiers standing guard. It speaks of soldiers in a garrison, in a fort, ready to defend the city. It would have been very familiar to the Philippians because they were a Roman colony, strongly protected by a Roman garrison and very, very proud of their security. Paul says, as I leave, as I close this letter, I need you to remember. Those of you who are divided need to get it together and agree in Jesus. Even though you're in persecution, you need to be known for your gentle spirit. And as all these things that are coming against you trouble inside the church and persecution outside the church, as those things trouble your mind, don't worry about it, pray about it instead. 
See, the peace wrecker here is that worrying ruins everything. So Paul gives them in three simple steps a way to move from worry to peace. The first is prayer. Then he goes on to say in verse 8, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. It's a long verse with a lot of words. Do you notice the point? You see, it's impossible to experience the peace of God if your mind is filled with the wrong stuff. Verse 8 is a mental filter. You can't help the thoughts that come crashing into you. You can put a stop to what stays there. Paul gives some criteria here. We're still studying. How many different layers or filters does Paul have for what a Christian should be thinking about? Look carefully at verse 8. True, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, and praiseworthy. How many do you count? That's an eight-layer filter. Paul's saying if it doesn't pass those criteria, you don't need to be thinking about it. His word think here means to ponder. Now, let's be really honest here for a second. If you took seriously all eight of those words, would that change your entertainment? If the things you looked at on the internet, the movies you chose, the books you read, the Twitter feeds you followed, if it met all eight of those criteria, would that reduce the content? If I'm really serious, if I apply verse 8, I'm going to have a lot of time on my hands. There's a whole vast array of things that we are continually allowing into our minds that may not be transparently wicked or evil, but there's nothing praiseworthy in it. It's not true. It's not honorable. It's not lovely. It's nothing that you could commend to anyone to say, look, enjoy this. If things that are on the opposite side of that, if things that are not true, that are not honorable, that are unjust, that are impure, that are not lovely, that are disreputable, that are not excellent and not praiseworthy, if those things are filling my mind, no wonder I feel such distance from the peace of God. And let me be really specific. Guys, Porn is the plague of our generation. It's very unlikely that anyone in this service, old enough to be in here, who has not viewed it, if that has wrapped itself around your heart and mind in such a way that you can't get away from it and you have intrusive thoughts about it, there's grace for you from Jesus. He wants to fill your mind with things that are true and honorable and pure and lovely and commendable, things that you could be proud of, things that you could recommend to your children, to your daughters, 
things that you could tell your mother about. I hardly talk to anybody, increasingly men or women, who isn't struggling in this regard. Guard your mind. And if you haven't, understand there is grace from Jesus for you. When you do, the peace of God really will fill your heart and mind. If you know how to worry, you already know how to do biblical meditation. See, the Eastern meditation, that invites you to empty your mind, usually through the use of a mantra. You have a word that you choose or that was assigned to you. You say it rhythmically, slowly, and slowly your mind empties. That's the Eastern concept of meditation. What Paul is talking about here in verse 8 is biblical meditation. He is saying, find things that meet these criteria that are lovely and true and commendable and praiseworthy, and think, ponder, turn those things over and over and over in your mind. If you know how to worry, you know how to do biblical meditation. You just have to change the content. But if the Internet's winning, and if that's 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 2 hours a day, with only occasional glimpses of the truth, you'll never have peace. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm saying it's possible. I'm saying that Jesus loves you even in that darkness. And He wants to fill your mind and fill your life with a whole new truth and a new level of peace that you have not presently experienced. God is a God of peace, and He has set all of these instructions. Everything that Paul is writing here is intended for the Philippians' peace. He says at the end in verse 9, Whatever, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I think what Paul's doing here at the very end is he is reassuring them, and he's giving them a mental picture for what the future looks like. Because sometimes another thing that steals my peace is it's just tough to know if you're doing the right thing. See, the Philippians know they're reading a letter from a Roman prisoner. They have no idea if they'll see him again. They know very well the severity of the Roman government. They know that Paul's hands, Paul's life is in cruel hands. And they're reading this letter maybe like little kids reading a last letter from their dad. So Paul leaves them with this. Whatever you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, in other words, the life that I lived in front of you, just practice that. Make that your habit. And here's what's going to happen. End of verse 9, the God of peace will be with you. The instruction for us, if we follow godly examples, God will be with us. If you have a godly example in your life, thank God for it and try to follow it. Young people, if you're blessed enough to be at church with your parents, thank God for that. A lot of kids come alone. You know your mom and dad aren't perfect, but they've set a godly example. They've tried to keep it Jesus-focused. Thank God for that. Wherever you find a godly example in this church, and there are many, they're all over. They're being more and more expressed in very intentional, personal discipling relationships. Wherever you find that personal example, put those same simple human habits into practice, and Paul says the God of peace will be with you. Everything in this letter, 
the calming and the peace in personal relationships, the refusal to worry and the focus on prayer and guarding the mind and thinking about the truth instead, and the simple imitation of lived-out faith, everything in this letter is directed that you may have peace. And it's a rare thing, and here's how we're going to close our service. God has provided for our peace, but it's one of the most elusive things in the Christian life. It's been shocking to me and very convicting this week to think how accustomed I've become to making an unpeaceful life normal. It's not. The fruit of the Spirit, Paul wrote the Galatians, is love, joy. What's the third fruit? Peace. In other words, the life of God manifests itself in peace, even in the most trying circumstances. That's why Paul's in prison writing about joy. That's why Paul's in prison worried about their peace, striving, writing, pleading, cajoling, confronting, so that they will have the peace of God that God has so richly provided, but it's rare. And here's how we're going to help each other before we go home. If you're right now living in a moment of peace with God, you have experienced in this little season of your life, you say to yourself, I find great peace with God. I'm not talking about your permanent, eternal relationship with Him. Jesus died so that you would have peace with God forever. I'm talking about the way you're living it and experiencing it right now. You're experiencing and living in a season of peace of God right now. Would you stand? Would you look at the proportions? For the rest of us, and I'll take my seat, we can pray together. Father, You are the God of peace. There are many, many names You have chosen to explain yourself to us. This is one of the most precious to me, and it's rare. Teach us, Lord, to obey you, to simply do what you say, to live at peace with each other, to have a gentle spirit toward others, to choose prayer instead of worry, and to make sure that our mind is filled with things that belong in it, that represent Jesus. Lord, what a, what a great need is represented by the fact that most of us remain seated. I pray, God, that in a supernatural way, in a divine way that comes from you, you would work in our hearts and minds to apply what we've heard and other lessons from Scripture, good examples we've been given, that we may experience you not only as a God who saves, but as the God of peace guards our hearts and minds in our Savior, Jesus Christ. We love you, we thank you, and we close, Lord, this service by seeking our hearts to generously give to you from what you have given us and worshiping you in song once more. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.